Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Thank You Now What, a podcast about life after service. I'm your host, Matt DeVivo. This episode was produced by Ben Murray. This episode, we talked to Jim Matheson. Jim is a senior lecturer at Harvard Business School, where he teaches entrepreneurial finance, works on business issues related to the environment, and supports veterans initiatives. Jim graduated from the U.S. Naval Academy and went on to be an F-14 and F-A-18 fighter pilot. He was a Top Gun graduate and instructor, flying as an adversary pilot to train America's best. Once Jim left active duty, he decided to get his MBA from Harvard. He has since spent the past two decades focusing on socially responsible investing and advisory. He also served as CEO for a sustainable water technology firm for 10 years. Now, in addition to teaching at Harvard Business School, Jim continues to work with veterans and other servant leaders running for office through New Politics, a Boston-based nonprofit, along with plenty of other things we didn't even get to. This is going to be one of our longer episodes, but how often do you get to talk to somebody in the Venn diagram of people who taught at both Top Gun and HBS? Despite our previous conversation about being a fighter pilot, I don't I don't lead with that. I don't talk much about that. In fact, for a while, I didn't want to do that. I wanted to sort of make it on my commercial chops, if you will. We hope you enjoy our conversation and thanks for listening. All right, cool. Hey, thanks for talking to me through. That was pretty good. Yeah, it's like, uh, I mean, you know, we're dealing with everything over Zoom, but we also have to find a way to emulate studio quality audio too. It also happens right. to save us money on actually finding a studio. I have a, I have my, what we call the personal Zoom studio, the PZS, the Harvard Business School Professor Personal Zoom Studio. So I've got an iMac, 27-inch, a 27-inch monitor. I'm tired of looking at myself. The best thing that Zoom added was you can you can actually hide your self-view so you can stop staring at yourself. So I can just look at you two handsome guys. But I got this light, so I spend most of my life standing right here uh, on Zoom. But it's nice just to kind of chill out. So you have your own, like, personal theater with, like, a backlight and everything? Yes, yes. Nice. Harvard-grade uh, ring light, I'm guessing. It's a serious, well, I should say it's two, it's two, like two big square things that are right behind here. It's quite a nice setup, actually. I've gotten used to it. The first week I was getting like, yeah, I have a makeup crew, my entourage. Exactly. You can see, look at, look at me. I had to take all my makeup off from earlier. So were you commuting back and forth to Boston before this? Yeah, before, I mean, we moved to Boise about four years ago. So we've been in Boston now about 22 years and about four years ago, we made the decision that we wanted to try to live by coastal. We thought it would be Massachusetts and California, but we kept coming to Boise to visit my brother. And it's just it's an amazing place. And it was a perfect counterbalance to Boston. I mean, it's alphabetically right next to it. B-O, Boston, B-O, Boise. So that way I can keep things straight. Right. Uh, but it's just, it's awesome. Great outdoors, super nice folks. It's, you know, lots going on. And it's a really nice juxtaposition against Boston, which is super intense and intellectually frenetic. So you bounce between the two. But I've been here six months straight. I'm kind of missing Boston, missing Cambridge, teaching virtually now, which actually is working like pedagogically. I think the students are learning, but you don't get the same connection with the students and them with each other. So I'm looking forward to being back there. Right. You don't get all that in-between time, right? Right. Where the, That's right. some of the osmosis may happen. Yeah, just all those little interstitial moments with the students before and after class. We show up before, we usually have some music playing, stay after, but it's not the same. They're kind of clicking in just as the Zoom class starts, and then a lot of them click off and go other places. You don't get the great intellectual connections also with the faculty and just, just the human interaction that matters so much. 
are you guys from around there originally? Where are you and your wife from? So my, it's funny. My wife would say uh, that we're from Ohio. She's definitely from Ohio, born and raised in Ohio. Uh, I went to junior high and high school in the same city town area as her, which is Worcester, W-O-O-S-T-E-R. Mm. It's funny, folks say you're from, from Worcester. You don't sound like you're from Worcester. You know, there's Worcester, Mass., which is spelled and said very differently. Worcester, Ohio uh, is where Julie was born and raised. And then I lived there a bit. And that's, we met there when I was back after my plebe year at the academy. But my dad was military. So I was born in Italy. We bounced all over, lived on the East Coast. Then we moved then to just south of Cleveland. And then from there, after high school, I headed off to Annapolis and then kind of bouncing around lots of places in the military. And then it was interesting, right? So I hadn't lived anywhere longer than about six years and now to be in Boston, you know, 20 plus years, although we've lived in different places around Boston to be in that city for 20 years. Although in New England, like many places, until you're fourth or fifth generation, uh, you, you know, you're still, you know, you're just visiting. Right. Yeah, call, yeah, call us if, you know, when you sign the Declaration of Independence and then then you're going to be a real Bostoner. Maybe you could open a Dunkin Donuts and just fast track. True. That's right. That is a fast track to uh, to localhood. Yeah. That's right. Or an Irish pub, but I'm not Irish. So that doesn't work. But I think that's right. So you, how long have you known your wife? It sounds like you grew up near each other. So we met when we were 19. So I won't even, I can date myself, but I won't date her, although we're the same age. So we knew each other for 10 years. Uh, so she was af- after her first year at the Ohio State University. No, it's the Ohio State University. You got to be careful with that. Oh, we know. Um, so, yeah, so I met my wife when we were 19. I was back after my plebe year from the Naval Academy. She was just finishing up at the Ohio State University. And we were friends for 10 years, got married when we were 29, and just about a month ago celebrated our 26th anniversary and all the craziness that happens in 26 years of marriage and then 36 years of knowing each other. So we kind of grew up together and we're best friends first and foremost. And that you know, being best friends actually helps a lot. Yeah, that's incredible. So, I mean, you had to have dealt with a ton being in the military, traveling all the time, moving every few years, right? Yeah, so we did a few moves together. So Julie first joined me uh, when I was stationed at Virginia Beach. I was in an F-14 squadron. I was between my first two deployments. So we had this great idea where she had been at school. We hadn't been in the same city. Let's let's finally live in the same place. So I just got back from deployment, uh, which in the Navy, in the aviation world, when I'm on an aircraft carrier, you, you do a six plus month cruise, but the whole year prior to that six month cruise, you're doing what's called workups. Mm. So you're out, you know, out for a month, in for a month, out for a week, in for a week. Um, and so uh, I was coming back from deployment. I was like, Hey, why don't you come down and we'll finally be in the same place. And so that lasted for about three months. And then all of a sudden I started this crazy workups cycle. And we were going to de- deploy in early 1993 over to the med. We ended up being in Bosnia and then back in Iraq at the time. But it was like a doubly intense workout uh, workout because we were getting ready to do this ingenious thing called a special MAGTAF configuration, which is essentially taking a normal naval aviation air wing on a carrier and adding a whole marine air ground task force on the same ship. So conceptually, it's great because you're going to go into uh, the Adriatic and be off the coast of Bosnia. And so you got your aviation assets, you got marine assets. The problem is they, it was a complete mess. Yeah. But we did a whole year of workup and then we did a very long and stressful and um, difficult uh, cruise as well. So I, she moved down and about two months later, I said, hey, 
we'll see you. And it was almost about 18 months till we really had meaningful time. And then we moved out to San Diego together when I went to Top Gun as an instructor. And that was that was a wonderful time. Yeah. Uh, so definitely talk about Top Gun. You said you were from a military family and you went to Naval Academy. How early on did you decide that you were going to try to go to a service academy? And uh, can you talk about your family military history, too? Yeah, we got an interesting one. We're sort of, uh, people call us the flying Walendas, you know, the Matheson brothers. So my dad was a Coast Guard Academy graduate and then went off and went through naval aviation training as Coast Guard aviators do. And then he spent most of his time flying with the Navy. Uh, He left and then went off to United Airlines and did a really nice, successful career as an airline pilot after that. Um, So I had been around airplanes all my life. I'm the youngest of three boys. Long story short, all three of us ended up becoming naval aviators in our very own way. So I went to the academy uh, as the youngest. Um, My oldest brother started flying when he was a wee pup, and that's really, really what he loved and wanted to do. So he committed everything to that. He started in the Marine Corps, so he went through the platoon leaders course, the PLC course from Kent State University in Ohio, and was in the basic school and wanted to go fly as a Marine aviator, but they said there's no marine aviation slots, you're going to have to wait. Uh, But the Navy's looking for folks. So he made the difficult decision of switching from being a marine officer to a naval officer, went down to flight training, ended up being a a fighter fighter guy like I was, had a great career, got out, flew for the airlines, and then was in the reserves and was selected as an admiral, spent a bunch of time very, very active as a senior reservist and retired from that recently. So that's John, my oldest brother. My middle brother, Paul, who's the guy that lives in Boise, Idaho. That's how we got to know Boise. He was doing all sorts of things. He saw me at the academy and he saw our oldest brother, John, doing aviation stuff and said that looked pretty cool. Um, he he wanted to be a like a forest ranger. His call sign is Smokey. It's mm. like Smokey the Bear. Yeah. Um, but he, he wanted to fly helicopters. So he had spent his whole life flying helicopters. So he went down to Aviation Officer Candidate School did a whole career flying helicopters, every different kind of helicopter you can imagine. And in fact, he still flies helicopters. He does search and rescue work here out in the West. Um, so all three of us, all three boys, like like our dad, uh, were naval aviators. And, and because we're all about the same age, we all were in the same world. So it's hardly a person of our age, like in the you know 50 to 60 years old today, prime of their life, I should say, 50 to 60 uh, that doesn't know that it was a naval aviator that doesn't know um, one of the Matheson boys. So it was kind of fun. It was really neat too, because we got a chance to bump into one another. We were maybe overseas deployed. We might see each other randomly in a port. We got to fly each other. So I've flown with my brother uh, in, in his helicopters. He's flown in the back of some of my jets. My oldest brother and I flew missions together as adversary pilots when I was a Top Gun instructor. So it was I mean, an amazingly unique and special situation to be able to be in the same business with your two brothers who are still today really great, great friends. Yeah. And you were you were class president at Naval Academy? Uh, I was. I am still. I, it's one of those jobs that if you do it just well enough, you'll, you'll never get unelected. Okay. Um, so I, I, I don't have it in me to screw up any more than I have so that I can get unelected. Um, so, uh, I took over, we had, uh, one of my great friends and a classmate, uh, Owen Duke, who was actually our elected class president at the Academy. And unfortunately, soon after graduation, he was killed in an aviation accident. Interestingly not, he was going through flight training as a Marine, but he was killed in a private plane accident. Hmm. So then, you know, I assumed the, the mantle of the presidency and it had been that 
for over three decades, I guess now, but we have an amazing class. Uh, it was class of 87 out of the Naval Academy, just an amazing group of people. Uh, and it's a really cool job because you get to connect with folks. You get to connect them to one another. Um, obviously, the big event is every five years we put on a class reunion. But we made a commitment some years ago that we were going to have a tailgate function at every football game. It's not happening this year. This is the first season, obviously, we're being a bit stymied. Yeah. But it's really about providing opportunities for the class to connect with one another. And even though I, I know so many folks in the class, we graduated a little over a thousand folks and we probably still have over a thousand still alive. There's still people that I, I bump into that I haven't met, which is surprising after all these years, but it's a, it's a great role. And, but if there's someone out there listening to this who would love to be the president of the class, I, I, I will yield the, the heavy golden crown to you. It, it must be a great network to be a part of because as we've seen recently, we have a lot of Academy grads coming on the podcast and, and we will continue to, and they just seem like they, you know, continue to be successful later in life. But having stayed connected for 30 years, I mean, I'm sure you've seen people do all sorts of things uh, in the military and then with their professional lives. For sure. And it's, it's, it's humbling to see what my classmates and other alumni of the Naval Academy and all the other service academies you know, have done or doing. And I would say that too, you got, you've had some great guests on some, you know, younger graduates that are doing amazing things. And the, I mean, you see the young midshipmen now that are still committed to that life of service. It's, I, I mean, I get very emotional when I think about these young people committing to the pathway that we all went down. And it's, it's really, really inspiring. And then you see the folks that, served a whole career. We still have classmates that are two and three stars. So it's only a small number of our classmates are still active duty, but they're going up the ranks um, at this point. And m- most of us, um, I mean, I ended up doing 21 years or so, including the reserves. Uh, most of our classmates only spent five or seven, maybe 10 years on average. And then to see the things not only they did in uniform, but all the things and the impact they've had outside of the military, whether it's as a family person, a member of a community, business leader, civic leader. It's really, it's inspiring. And I, and I love that because it helps push me. It helps inspire me to be better. And I've been able to also connect with other service academy graduates, you know, uh, outside obviously of my year at Navy, mm-hmm. even, even what I have friends that are West Point graduates. So it's, you know, it's great to have veteran friends who are doing amazing things and uh, help, help push me, help guide me, help hold me accountable to the values that we all subscribe to when we showed up at the Academy. So it's really, really cool. And I think it's cool too, that the Academy, the Naval Academy, and I think West Point and the other academies did this similar thing, but they made a, you know, a subtle but important change to the mission some years ago where you'd think that the, the Naval Academy is all about preparing these young midshipmen to become Naval officers. And that is the primary role, but it's also about being leaders in the community and, you know, outside of the military, because as I said, most folks do, most of their time and have most of their impact once they've left the military. So I love that the academy and the academies acknowledge that and, and that they are training these young folks and making this huge investment in us and then have this expectation that through our lives, we're going to give back and we're going to lead uh, and we're going to lead with values. Right. You have this pollination that happens or cross pollination from people who are exiting the military at different points in their career and, and entering corporate public organizations at different points and really influencing at all levels. And I think everyone has a, you know, outweighs or their impact outweighs their, their basic presence. Right. So it's really, 
it's really good to see that. And when I get to work in an organization with other vets, it's great to know that they're having positive impacts like that. No, I totally agree. And I, and I think one of the positive things, and I think your podcast, I mean, just the, the title of it, I think is emblematic of a change, a sea change in the military and veteran community that it really is important that we're explicit about supporting one another and being open about networking. It's sort of a thing that 20 or 30 years ago, it wasn't as explicit. I think yeah. now supporting you know, generations of veterans as they're leaving service, whether they're going to go through Harvard Business School and I'm the faculty advisor on the Armed Forces Alumni Association. So we see a small sliver of really high-performing veterans that leave and come through HBS on their way out, or they're a high-performing enlisted member and they come out and they're looking for just that right job back in their hometown. I think this connectivity and supporting one another to find a place where you can build a, a fulfilling and impactful life and continue to support. I think, I think it feels to me like we, as a veteran community, we've gotten better at that as we become more explicit and more intentional about in uh, supporting one another. And I think also, I mean, I, again, I love the podcast, which is, you know, hey, thank you for your service. It's like, okay, so that's good. Let's help veterans find the next place that they can go and have a real impact and lead and serve, whether it's in the corporate community or, or in their, their hometown community. Right. We say this all the time. And actually, uh, we just, they posted an article about us in the Wharton online website, paper, whatever. But uh, we, we don't try to give advice. We just like to tell stories and, and take from it what you will. And I think my biggest commitment that I try to make is that I'll always pick up the phone and I'll be honest with you if, if I can help out or not, or if I can give you good ideas or I just don't know about something, maybe I'll connect you with someone else. But I always pick up the phone, right, as a baseline. Totally. I think being responsive and, you know, being fortunate to not only have graduated from the Naval Academy, but also having gone through and got my MBA at Harvard Business School. I mean, that combination where you can connect, a, you know, an academy, service academy with a top business school. I mean, I feel obviously super blessed. But I do think there is that that connectivity where people respond. There's a not only I mean, a sense of obligation, but I sense a, a real sense that that matters. And and every year I help a set of students, you know, that are thinking about coming and going to, to graduate school. And the only thing I ask, I think this is the only thing that was asked when people helped me was just pay it forward, right? Help the next generation yep. of folks that are coming out. And I think that's great. And I think that's, it's nice that we have that ethos in the, in the veteran community. I would love to see that, you know, more broadly in society that we really are connected to each other in profound ways as, you know, members of a community, members of a country, member of the kind of the human race. I think we kind of lose some of that with all of the, if you, if you, if you read the news too much, which I do, you can lose track that, I mean, my God, everybody's fighting everybody and there's so much division, which is, which is true, but there's also a lot of goodness happening amidst all this. I think it's nice when we can have these little success stories. Yeah. We've had other people talk about that too. And it's something that I want to get to uh, later, but I think that veterans have a unique advantage to close the gap of some of the, uh, some of the, those dividers that society and media and social media and, you know, the, just the, everything that goes on today put up. Right. And, and it comes from that shared, shared background, understanding and respect for the other person too. So I think veterans are, are, you know, incredibly well poised to bridge that gap. No, I agree. And I mean, I think one of the things I'm proudest of, of the, the military, and it's, it's far from perfect for sure. I mean, so I'm a white guy, um, I can't speak to the experience of females in the military or black Americans or other, uh, 
you know, minorities, but, but it feels to me just talking to friends that, that do represent those, uh, those groups that the experience in the military is more advanced and better. I mean, the, the military integrated race, I think, again, too late and imperfectly, but I think has done, done well. Uh, my class, I think was the eighth class to graduate women from the academy, still highly imperfect. Um, but I think the military is a place where opportunities, regardless of where you come from or what you look like, I think can, can really matter. That's why we saw, you know, when, when the idea of don't ask, don't tell, and it almost feels to me, um, and I, and I know that there's been individual experiences that haven't been this way, but at, at the abstract level, I think the military has largely been able to absorb you know, a lot of differences, um, gay and lesbians in the military, we have classmates, we have a transgender classmate. Um, and so I think, I think what military folks care about, which is, I think what most people care about is, are you a good person? Are you doing a job? Uh, are you doing it well? Do you care? And I think that transcends pretty much everything else. And I think the military has largely worked its way through that. Although again, we still have a long, a long way to go. Yeah. I know you do some work in, uh, in like political mentorship and, and sponsorship, but I want to talk about being a fighter pilot first. Cause. Oh yeah, there we go. Go deep back into the history books. Yeah, I know. Before we get into the cool stuff, we got to cover being a fighter pilot. Uh, first, what was your call sign? Well, it's top secret. I can't tell you that. <laughs> now it's uh, every I time I answer, I want when you meet that. That's the deal. No, I said, no, my call sign is fuzzy. F U Z Z Y. Um, and, that? and, that is top secret. Okay. That I can't tell you. Um, but usually it, usually it has to do your call sign is, um, and it's funny, right? Because I said my, my middle brother is a, a helicopter pilot and we said we, we call him Smokey, but the helicopter pilots, and they're kind of normal people. They don't run around calling each other yeah. nicknames and stuff. He's, he kind of looks at my oldest brother and me as kind of sophomoric idiots, you know, who have these nicknames for each other. Um, but usually you get your call sign when you do something really stupid that you'd rather forget. Okay. Um, and of course it gets memorialized in your call sign. And the more, the more you fight it, the more it's certain to stick. So like if, if, if you do something really stupid and someone says, you know, your Delta Tau Delta call sign is, you know, such and such. And then if you go, Oh, I love that. They go, no, I forget it. we got to change that. But if you like fight it, it's going to stick with you forever. Um, no, fuzzy's good. I think it's fitting. Um, I got that early in my aviation career. And most people, you know, even people in my family and my wife at times will call me fuzzy. And so it, I got to sort of keep track of who knows me as fuzzy and who knows me as Jim. So, and that goes for most just nicknames in general. If you fight it, it makes it stick harder. Totally. Totally. Exactly. Yeah. General life advice for anyone listening, not in the military. Or, That's or, right. Or exactly. Otherwise. Yeah. The thing you absolutely cannot do is come up with your own call sign. We were, oh, I'm on some yes. text, I'm on some, I'm on some different text threads. And one of the text threads I'm on is with a, just a great group of um, brothers. Cause it was at that time, all, all men, uh, my first fighter squad in VF 84, the Jolly Rogers. And it's just, this text thread. I hope no one ever gets a hold of it because there's just so much craziness on it. Um, but we were, you know, everybody you know has these memories and we were remembering one of our squadron mates, who I won't name, but showed up you know, at our squadron right out of the training. And he sort of showed up and was like, my call sign's Maverick. And, you know, it's like, right after that, people look at him, no, your call sign's not Maverick. You know, and we named him something else. I don't want to name him because he, we, we gave him to whatever a, a, a non-Maverick related call sign would be. But you can't, you can't claim your own call sign. You have to earn it. 
um, and then ideally just sort of live it. Yeah, we had a teammate who showed up and he was like, yeah, on my last team, they used to call me Big T. And we we're like, well, we're not calling you Big T. So <laughs> Exactly. But then, but then we started making fun of him. And, and uh, well, I mean, not making fun of him because I mean, he is pretty big. But uh, we st- we started joking around. Uh, and it, it, have, it actually did stick, but in a very sarcastic way. We would always say it, you know. Oh, hey, what's Big T doing? You know, we still call him that to this day. So I think that's the that's the first time I've ever seen that work. But it's it's laid over with so much sarcasm that uh, we still give him for it. So how how competitive is it to become a fighter pilot? Because you got to imagine that everyone coming out of the Naval Academy wants to throw their hat in the ring, right? I mean, a lot of people. Yeah, and, and from everywhere, right? And so think about the time I graduated um, just about a year after Top Gun 1 came out. And I, I knew COVID was serious when Top Gun 2 got delayed. That's when I, you know, it's a little bit like all the people in, in the Midwest got angry of COVID when the Big Ten football schedule got canceled. Yeah, I got angry. I got really angry and frustrated when they moved the Top Gun 2 uh, launch date out. Um, so Top Gun had just come out. Uh, in fact, we're talking about my wife, Julie. She and I went on one of our first dates. Uh, she came down to Annapolis in 1986. And I think the movie was had just come out or was just coming out. So we went to see Top Gun together. And she reminds me of this. And I said, I'm going to go do that. And I, and I was like, no, nah, I didn't say that. She's yeah, yeah, you did. And I was like, okay. So yeah, you leave the academy, you go to flight training, and then you go through two years of flight training. And all along the way, you're being graded every, you know, just all the military training everybody's done out there. Everything you do is graded six ways to Sunday, right? And then at the end of that, if you're lucky enough and you continue to do well, you can select for jet training. And then when you leave jet training, get your wings. Hopefully you do well enough, you can select for the aircraft. I wanted to fly F-14, so I got selected to go to Virginia Beach and fly F-14s. And then I went through all that training and then joined that squadron, VF-84 I was talking about, which is an amazing group of people. Hmm. Um, we deployed, you know, did workups, deployed for Desert Storm in early 1991, and then did a Bosnia deployment. So just a really interesting time in the world, too. We saw the Cold War end, the Berlin Wall come down. We saw all of the things that have shaped um, what's going on in the world today happen. And then I was fortunate enough out of that squadron to get selected to go to Top Gun as a student and went out with, uh, it turns out I went out there with a great friend of mine and a Naval Academy classmate, Johnny Martins. His call sign was Snooze. Never has there been a better call sign than Snooze, because Snooze it could and still does fall asleep at the drop of a hat. And I think he probably slept most of the time in the back of the F-14, but he was an amazingly talented Rio. So we went through the class together as students. And the whole goal of Top Gun, you know, it started in 1969, essentially to make sure that the Navy fighter pilot crews were the best trained that they could be based on whatever threat they might face. And we were we were getting our heads handed to us in Vietnam in the air. And so Top Gun was started to figure out how to rectify that. And it stayed true to that mission. And so when I went to, uh, through, this, through the class as a student with Snooze in 1992, our job was to go and learn, get better. But really, it was about coming back to the squadron and to the air wing and training others. Um, and then fortunately, you know, we did, we did well as students and we were asked to come back as instructors. So all of the instructors are, are first and foremost graduates of the program, and then a certain number of them get asked to come back and teach. And then I went back as an instructor in 1993, and Snooze went back as well. So both of us were instructors there together. And then that's a whole other story. Lots of volleyball, time on the beach, riding motorcycles down the runway, 
uh, and, you know, and the occasional flight here and there as well. What is the delineator between a Top Gun grad and a guy who's a, who's a member of your unit? So, like, how many Top Gun grads are a part of your unit? And is it really a force multiplier, like a train-the-trainer type of deal? Yeah, it definitely is a train-the-trainer. We call it Teach the Teachers. And it's evolved. And uh, it evolved a lot in the 90s when, when I was there. And I did four years on the staff at Top Gun. First, when we were in San Diego, and then we moved the school from there up to Fallon, Nevada. And we can talk about that. It's sort of an interesting experience, just the, the whole organizational and leadership experience but also the experience of leaving San Diego and moving to Nevada, which was a little traumatic at first, but um, it turned out to be a fantastic place to be. Essentially, every fighter squadron at that time, F-14s, and, and then for a while, F-14 and F-18 squadrons, and now the F-14 is, is no longer, so it's the F-18 squadron. About once every turnaround cycle, we mentioned earlier in the conversation that you know the job of a, of a fighter pilot is to, a Navy fighter pilot, is to take your airplane with your air wing onto a carrier go into harm's way and be ready to be deployed wherever things are happening. And so that it's usually about a two-year cycle, getting ready to do that and then deploying. And in that two-year cycle, every squadron gets usually one slot to send a crew to Top Gun. And the whole idea is that they send a crew that can go and is going to be around long enough after they come back to teach the teachers, you know, share the, the latest and greatest lesson learns and training methodologies with their squadron, but also with the whole air wing, all the different aircraft types in the air wing that comprise an, an aircraft carrier. So, you know, I think when when we thought about, you know, and I don't know why I was selected other than I imagine the same way we selected people later was folks that were good, you know, really good pilots and had the you know, connection and respect of their peers, but also could be good teachers mm-hmm. who could go and learn and not just make themselves better, but come back and and really do the, the teaching part. That's a huge part of it. And then the, the big changes we made in the 90s is that the, the Top Gun course was lengthened because, you know, the mission set was more complex, but we were actually spending a lot more time making sure that the graduates, the Top Gun graduates could actually go back and do the teaching part. So we spent a lot more time imbuing them with the tools and the techniques and the pedagogy to go back and be effective back in their squadrons. Hmm. How do you... I've taken some liberties to ask dumb questions about being a fighter pilot. What kind of stuff do you shoot down? Like now I would just fly a drone and go fly and shoot it down. You, you can't like throw clay pigeons out of the window though, right? Uh, yeah. Well, there's, you know, it's so funny, you know, when I first started flying talking about there were some of the, you know, these old school Vietnam guys who talked about, you know, in, in their, you know, the A7 or the A4s, they have like a, you know, an ashtray, you know, in the cockpit, and you're talking about smoking in the cockpit or opening the window and shooting their 45 as they're flying over Hanoi or something like that. I was like, you never know how true or not that is, but it's like, that sounded like a great image. Um, it was interesting, right? So, so the F-14, the first aircraft I flew, I also got to fly the F-18, the F-16, a whole bunch of different stuff from different jobs I had. But the F-14 singular mission, I mean, it's a beautiful, beautiful uh, piece of engineering but its its mission was to go high and fast and intercept the Soviet bombers who might be coming out to threaten the aircraft carrier, right? So that was its mission. And then all of a sudden, the Soviet Union is no more. So the F-14 had to think about different missions. It turned out the F-14 was a great uh, air-to-ground platform. It did a great job of dropping bombs. It could carry a lot of stuff. It was heavy, um, had a lot of payload. And so the from the, the late 80s, when I first started training and flying and deploying to the late 90s, the mission set changed entirely from Cold War mission to 
a lot of what we're seeing, a lot of what you experienced in Afghanistan and Iraq, which is close air support, kind of look for warfare close in. And so the, the mission set of the F-14 and the F-18 was what we called strike fighter role. So it wasn't, you couldn't be just a pure fighter or a pure attack pilot. You had to be a strike fighter pilot. You had to fight your way in through integrated air defense. It might include aircraft. And then you had to get bombs on target. Increasingly, those bombs became more precise, laser-guided munitions, et cetera. And then you had to get yourself out of the threat arena. So the the training um, that we did at Top Gun moved from being mostly about being a great fighter pilot to being a great strike fighter pilot, strike fighter pilot, and then being able to teach folks. It was really an interesting time to be there. A bunch of us that were in Desert Storm, I mean, we were doing things in Desert Storm that we had never done or never trained to do. You know, we did what we should have done, which is overwhelm them with superior force. But we had to step back afterwards and, and really reflect on what we'd learned and what could we do better. How could the Air Force and the and the Navy actually work together in joint operations? That's a whole a whole another story. But it was really initially about yeah, you shoot you, know, you shoot things down with missiles to you actually are a strike fighter pilot. You know, depending on what the mission it could be, close air support could be a laser guided bomb onto. Uh, onto a bridge, it could be taking out a surface-to-air missile. And we had to train increasingly at Top Gun. We had to train to all those mission sets. Yeah, I think a lot of people who haven't really paid it much thought just think fighter pilots get into dogfights with other fighter pilots and and maybe, like, take down a bomber and then... But they don't understand the the air-to-surface or air-to-ground stuff uh, and the other complex mission sets that you guys have to do. Yeah, and we did. We still did, even in the, and I'm sure they do in the course now. Last time I was briefed on it, you still do a lot of air to air, because that you know at, at the core, if you don't if if you don't have air superiority, it's tough to carry on the yeah. you know the ground mission or the air to ground mission. So you have to take take that under control first. But also, it's a great way to get to be a good pilot to understand how to maneuver your aircraft in three dimensions and really get a lot of good situational awareness. So. We still do a lot of training in the air-to-air realm, but it's all with the goal of being an integrated strike fighter pilot where there's an air-to-air mission and an air-to-ground mission as well. And you know, all that said, there's nothing more fun than going up and doing what we call 1v1 with you know, uh, one, of your, one of your friends and just kind of being a mile of beam at 15,000 feet at 300 knots and turning in and having a good, good old-fashioned dogfight and you know, seeing who bests who. That's that's still fantastic, and that's still, you know, back if you go all the way back to the first time that that men strapped it was men all men at the time um, people strapped aircraft on in World War One, and it's crazy when you see some of these these movies that reenact that stuff. These those are those are hardcore hardcore people. Yeah, you just got to sure. fly into the sun, right? That's what I heard. That was a key. I flew these <laughs> exactly. I, I flew some of these. When I, I did a role, uh, it was the, involved in the adversary program. Uh, so, at, you know, we moved everything to Fallon. So we had all this infrastructure, including an adversary unit. And the adversary's unit was to fly a bunch of different aircraft that, you know, that essentially represented the, the threat, the, the red, red versus blue, blue being the friendly forces, red being the, you know, the threat forces. And so we got to fly all kinds of different stuff. And, you know, we were flying stuff that was old. You know, so I would be flying like a, you know, it felt like the thing was like a 1950s vintage fighter and up against the brand spanking new thing. And all you had was your experience and, and your guile and this awareness you got to get in the sun. So I would just try to get up into the sun. And I knew that if I could get into the sun, you could start to see the other aircraft start to like, you could kind of sense they were looking around for you. But yeah, you always want to attack out of the sun. So you could be a fighter pilot. You know everything. 
all this stuff. You you know what it means to be a fighter pilot. Tack re- out of the sun. Yeah. Do you, uh, is there like a height cutoff? Is that like a real well, thing? Actually, you can, it, it is a real thing. They have this, but it's, uh, you can actually be, I've seen some pretty big guys flying. Uh, F-14 was a big aircraft, so there's plenty of room. The big thing was if like, if you're, if your legs, because you, the big, the biggest concern is if you have to eject out of the thing, yeah. like you're going to kneecap yourself coming out of it. Um, but there's some pretty big dudes that uh, that that flew flew the F-14 for sure. Have you ejected? No. No. How many no. of those do you uh, get in a career? Uh, it depends on whether how much of it's your fault or not. <laughs> um, so we 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 had a we have a had a, a, a squadron mate actually. Two, two crews, um, same pilot, same Rio, ejected twice for two very different reasons. And there's a lot of backstory to that. Mm. But, you know, and, and we give this guy, the Rio, especially a lot of grief for having ejected twice. So I know people, I think the record maybe is three times. Most people have never, some once, twice is a lot. And I think there is one person I know of that ejected three times. So that's a pretty expensive, I've seen it happen. I've been around when I've seen it happen. Yeah. Um, but I honestly, if I look back on my career, if I, if I know what I know now, I probably should have ejected at least a couple of times. And, you know, just by sure dumb luck, uh, you know, survived whatever situation I, in retrospect, probably should have ejected out of. All right. Well, uh, I mean, if you haven't been skydiving yet, I can take you sometime just, you know, so we can knock that out. I'm sure you probably have though. I, I, I have done that. And I, I, it's a really cool idea, but it's this idea of you know, jumping out of a perfectly good airplane still seems kind of nonsensical to me. My my dad, for his, I guess it was his 80th, and he's on, he's going to be 85 uh, this coming year. He's going. He says he wants to do it again. He jumped out. Uh, he's done a number of jumps, but he jumped out at 80, and I think he wants to jump out at 90 and maybe 95. He says he wants to jump out when he's 100. So I'm like, I'm I'm good with that. One of my really good friends, he tandems people as well, and he tandemed his grandfather for his 80th birthday. His grandfather was in the Air Force or in the Air Corps before it was the Air Force and said that he fell out of a plane once and his emergency chute activated. So he was really happy to go again. <laughs> and he, yeah, landed, you hear these and he stories. landed without his boots on. It, it like oh my ripped God. his boots off. Can you something. imagine that? Yeah, just sitting around, you know, yeah. something got blown out of the plane. Yeah. Uh, you know, you've heard, you know, I'm sure you've read stories about folks that, you know, their bomber fell apart over Europe in World War II and they had no shoot and somehow, you know, one in a one in a million, they hit the side of a snowy tree just right. Can you imagine falling 30,000 feet and somehow surviving that? Oh, my gosh. That's incredible. Be crazy. So yeah. one, one thing that Green Berets like me and fighter pilots like you have in common is that we do a lot of survival training right so did you enjoy that did you have to go through like multiple instances throughout the years get some refresher training how was that so it's funny you mentioned that because the we were at dinner my brother who i mentioned lives in boise and his his wife and my wife so recently just a couple weeks ago we were out to dinner and somehow we got on the topic of talking about seer school a survival, evasion, resistance, and escape. Seer school, and that every you know you went through, I went through, everybody goes through, and and I don't think we'd ever talked about that. And so we kind of got on this roll, and Julie and Kata uh, were just looking at us, and and it was really kind of interesting because I hadn't thought about that training, but it was really intense. And I think the whole idea there is 
like everything else is to put you in that situation so that if you, you know, hope you don't ever end up there, but if you ever end up in that situation, at least you know, not necessarily that you know exactly what to do. I think more importantly, you know how you're going to react. Like we do hypoxia training. Like you go up and they just start taking away the oxygen. It's not like you want to practice getting good at being without oxygen, but you start to understand the symptoms and how you're going to respond. And you learn a lot about yourself when you're put in these really difficult situations. I learned a lot about myself uh, at SEER training. So I did that. And I, I also did uh, one of the mission sets I did with the F-14 was reconnaissance. So the F-14 can carry this huge camera pod, with a bunch of different cameras, infrared and others. And we'll come back to drones. I want to because nowadays you would never send a plane in to do it because you have a drone. But at the, at the time, that was the best option. So we'd have a camera pod and we'd fly into places and take pictures before or after strikes and what have you. And so there was some extra training we had to do because that was a, a, a relatively high-risk mission. But it's all kind of the same thing. It's, it's one of probably like you, many, many things I've done that I'm glad I did once, but I don't think I would want to do it again. Yeah. <laughs> I have a long list of those. <laughs> I have a long list of things that, yeah, I did that. Check, check, check. But no thanks on a second try. Yeah. I don't, I don't like playing POW uh, that often. Yeah. Right. Right. Well, I was thinking I, the thing I remembered, um, because the first two, the, 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 the survival and evasion is just that. You're trying to survive with nothing, eating, you know, little whatever animals or twigs you can find. Uh, and I did it. I did my, my initial training up in Brunswick, Maine, and it was early winter. So it was kind of cold and wet and nasty. Mm-hmm. And you do that thing for like two or three days. And I, I was, and we crewed up. So I was with another, uh, a, a young enlisted guy named Chris and we did pretty well. So we didn't get captured. Um, but we were so cold and so hungry. And, it, and we knew that at a certain time they were going to blow this big whistle around the whole forest. And when the whistle blew, you're supposed to find your way to the nearest road. Um, and they were going to bring you then into camp. And so we're like, Oh man, we're like cold and, you know, can't, at least we're going to go to camp though. At least we'll have a, like a little cell or something. It's, 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 you know, we're imagining we'll have a little cot and stuff. So basically the whistle blows, we find our way to the road. We're kind of standing by the road and then this truck finally pulls up and, you know, you know, yeah. what happens next, you know, you yeah. kind of get jolted into reality with a, like a rifle butt and you're like, Oh, this isn't going to go well for me. I think I'd rather be out there being cold and hungry than what's about to happen. Yeah, they really teach you that, that your worst day evading is your better than your best day in captivity. And that's the kind of training that Vietnam guys, like you said before, Vietnam guys didn't have. They had to figure out the hard way, the really hard way. And then they came back and taught, you know, generations like ours. Totally. You know, it's funny. The, the, there's the old adage, and we sort of had this at Top Gun, which was you, um, you're, you're going to fight like you train, so you better train like you're you're going to fight, right? So you just got to get ready and take that level of intensity. And certainly in the military context, whether you're going through uh, special forces training or top gun cert, but I think that also applies in the real world. And it's interesting when we, when I kick off my class at Harvard business school, in the first day, I talk about that. I'm like, listen, I I teach entrepreneurial finance. So it's a bunch of students that, you know, either are or want to start new companies or maybe want to invest in companies. And that's a hard, that's a hard business. You've had some other folks on the podcast. And that's just, that's a, it's an exciting, but really challenging pathway. Mm-hmm. And so I'm like, Hey, let's, let's push each other in here so that when we get out there, you know, we can make better mistakes than we might otherwise make or try to avoid uh, making the same mistakes that, you know, that I've already made. So it's kind of, I think that same thing applies certainly in the military context, 
But I think we can do that in a, any kind of training context and just sort of take it serious. Hey everyone, I want to take a break from the action to tell you about two great organizations, Small Steps in Speech and the Coast to Coast Foundation. Small Steps in Speech was founded in honor of my friend, Staff Sergeant Mark Small, Mark with a C, of 3rd Special Forces Group U.S. Army. It helps children with speech and language disorders get therapies, treatments, and devices needed to improve their communication skills. As a Special Forces medic, Mark selflessly cared for many sick people, a number of whom were children. More than a decade later, he still serves as the inspiration for the foundation. To find out more, visit smallstepsinspeech.org. Go to Facebook or Instagram at smallstepsinspeech or Twitter at ssinspeech. I know you've heard me talk about the Coast to Coast Foundation for a few months now, so when I recently caught up with my buddy Mario, I wanted to have him do the talking for me. Hi everyone, this is Mario Silvis, the director of the Coast to Coast Foundation. We just completed the seventh ride for the Fallen on September 11th. We rode over 4,000 miles from Los Angeles, California to Arlington National Cemetery, stopping in more than a dozen cities across the country to reconnect with families of fallen special operators and raise funds for those still in need. The Coast to Coast Foundation was founded in honor of Sergeant First Class Ryan Savard of 3rd Special Forces Group and U.S. Special Operations Command. It helps wounded special operations veterans close the financial gap between their lasting medical needs and what's traditionally covered. All proceeds from the Coast to Coast Foundation go to assisting veterans in their recovery from combat and service-related injuries. Your donations have helped improve and even save the lives of special operations veterans still battling the lasting effects of war. If you aren't yet, you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at CXC Foundation or by visiting our website directly at coastxcoast.org. Be sure to click that donate button to help make a difference. Celebrate, remember, honor. Coast to Coast. Thanks for listening, and let's get back to the show. So can you talk about the point where you decided to go to Harvard Business School? Was that like a planned transition phase? What what were you kind of dealing with career-wise when you decided to do that? Yeah, it was not. So I was having a great time in the military, in the Navy, doing well, had been, you know, was tracking nicely, and and, and they invested a lot of time and money in, in me. Um, I had a medical thing happen where I was trying to get cleared to be able to go back out to the aircraft carrier, and in short, they wouldn't let me do that. So I, I was at Topkin when this happened. I, I naturally would have gone out to a Hornet squadron, F-18 squadron. Um, I ended up at the adversary unit which I described earlier, which was fantastic. But at that point, it was this decision where I wasn't going to get to go back out and operate off the carrier. I could still fly, but I knew that if I wasn't going to go to the carrier, I was probably never going to command a Hornet squadron and I wasn't going to command a carrier. And I was like, you know what, if I'm going to do this, I really want to be on the tip of the spear. So it was a really difficult decision to decide whether to stay in uh, active duty or get out. And so I thought about it a lot. And we were living, I said, in Fallon, Nevada. And Fallon, Nevada is in the high desert. And we had a nice house that had like an acre of land. And for some reason, I decided that one of my missions was going to be to grow some grass in Fallon, Nevada. So I, I had like two tons of manure delivered to the backyard. And so I would, you know, do my flying thing. I would go out, was, you know, in the summer. So there was late, long, long summer days. So I was just out sh- literally shoveling manure, and, you know, after like a few days of doing that and just sort of pondering life, like, should I stay in? Should I get out? If I get out, what do I do? 
I had a few years earlier, back at my 10th reunion at the academy, I just had a set of great friends and Naval Academy classmates graduate from business school. And so in the back of my mind, I had those conversations playing and I'm out there shoveling manure and I'm like, you know what? That sounds like a really interesting option. So I literally just stuck the shovel into this pile of manure and I went in and went heads down for the next three months, studying for the GMAT, writing up all my applications, calling all my friends and saying, how does this actually work? I didn't know if that's what I wanted to do. I didn't know if I would get in. I was late. I was already, you know, almost 13 years active duty. So that was pretty late to get out. I just made 05. Uh, but I said, you know what? If, if what I really want to do is I want to be great at whatever I do. And if I, for whatever reason, I can't stay on that same track in the Navy, let's see what opportunities there are out in the real world. And I felt like When I decided to go to the military, I went to the academy, and that was a great thing. I got all that time and energy and people helping me be a great junior officer. And I said, why not go to a great business school and start that next life in the same way? And fortunately, I I got accepted to some business schools, and I chose Harvard. And having looked back, it was an amazing experience. Now, I was a good 10 years older than my fellow classmates when I showed up. Which was, you know, which was a great experience, and and maybe I was a little too too old, but for me it was perfect. I loved it. It was a great great experience. Yeah, Ben and I both went to an executive MBA, so our peers were a little older. But I don't think Harvard uh, does the MBA. No, no, we don't have executive programs. So I thought about that, and I think the executive programs are are, are fantastic, and I think there's more of them now. But I decided, you know what? I had the opportunity to go immerse myself. It was actually quite a luxury, honestly, to take two years yeah. to just study. And then my eyes got completely opened. I mean, I, I read some business things and I used to read the Wall Street Journal on occasion. So I, you know, I thought I knew a little bit about life outside the military. But, you know, when you, when you guys did your executive program, you probably were already working. But for me, you know, you come out of the military, right out of the military. In fact, you know, I was still in the reserves. So it was like this whole world opened up of all the possibilities out there. And it was, it was both exciting and overwhelming. I mostly knew that I wanted to do startup innovative stuff. I liked fast moving environments. I love technology and had a chance to work on some cool stuff in the military. So I kind of went, I went into business school, pretty sure that I want to do something, you know, like that startup stuff. And this was in the late nineties too. So it was the, the internet bubble was, was inflating at that point. And so I was seeing all this stuff. I was like, ah, that seems really oh, cool. Yeah. Netscape. Totally. Yeah, exactly. I remember literally I was living in San Diego. It was 96. I remember when Netscape went public. This is how aware I was as a military. I don't know why I knew that, but because I, I was using the browser. I was kind of a geek. And I was like, that's really cool. Right. And then it was interesting because I was, I went to HBS, started in, in 99 and then graduated 2001. So it was this crazy internet bubble that went up, 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 up. And it was this first year was just completely crazy. The second year, the bubble burst. Um, and so it was a really interesting time to be at business school. And then, of course, the 20 years since I've had a chance to do lots of cool stuff. But it was a really interesting moment in time to not only just have the luxury of being at school and focused and meeting new people, learning new things, but also seeing seeing this internet bubble thing happen, you know, literally right in front of us. In that 20 years, uh, so I guess I want your 20 year long thoughts on this. How much does brand matter in picking a business school? You know, I, I don't want to sound, uh, I don't want to sound snobby, but I think, I think it matters a lot. And I, and I think we're starting to see that play out right now with COVID and I mean, it's huge opportunity cost and real cost to go to business school. So I think, 
I think that we're going to see some of the top brands probably take market share in higher education and in MBA programs through this COVID piece because you know the perceived value of some of the you know the more middling schools. That said, there are a ton of amazing schools out there, and I think programs have gotten more specialized. Whether it's about international business, about entrepreneurship, about finance, I think there's a lot of places that folks can go and get a great education. And I particularly love the joint programs. Uh, and and again, I was a little already kind of on in the years, but as I look back and I see folks that are doing like a law degree and a business degree, or especially like the Harvard Kennedy School business school combination, uh, I think that's a really really powerful combination. And I think the brand matters a lot. Um, because there are, people, there are certain perceptions, right? Especially a, a brand that has a, a, a global allure, Harvard, Stanford, Wharton, name your, your top schools, because it's a very international world. If people are doing things internationally. I think that matters a lot. And I don't, and, and, and while I'm completely amazed and humbled by the colleagues I have now on the faculty at HBS, I've only been on the faculty a couple of years, so I'm new, very, very new to that world. There's just some just incredibly smart, thoughtful people that really care about the world and the students. And then you get these incredibly bright and ambitious students that come. I, they're just really energized by the students. So I think, and, and so my experience both in going to business school and teaching is at, at Harvard, but I, I know that that's the case in other schools as well. So it's that milieu of that, just all that stuff, that friction we talked about earlier, just being there and learning and pushing and then the relationships that you have that last, you know, a lifetime and you end up with people as your friends are doing incredibly impressive and important things. So it's, it's cool. I think it does matter where you go. Right. I like to think about it in, in the, I guess, three groups, like the, the knowledge, the experience and the network. And with the network comes the brand. So the knowledge you have, if you watch, you know, well, uh, goodwill hunting, you, you can get the knowledge right. at a library for free. Um, but beyond the knowledge is the experience of being in a program with other highly, you know, high functioning, highly capable people listening to world-class professors, give you real world examples, listening to your classmates tell you about their experience too, because everyone has a different one. And then the network and the brand, meaning that you can always return to that. You can, whether it's something concrete, like going to a networking function or calling up another uh, alumnus or alumna or just just returning like you did to, to teach later on too. I think it's a great way to think of it. And I think the, I mean, the other thing uh, in particular, especially with HBS, is the pedagogy. I really love the case method. It has its limitations to be mm-hmm. sure. And as we're teaching, we try to bring in a bit of lecture and problem sets and stuff. But th- for me, that way of learning, of immersing myself you know, day in and day out in these contexts, and trying to think like the protagonist who's facing some big tension, right? I, I, that was a really great way for me to learn. Yeah. And to your point, hearing and and as as the, a faculty member, your job's not actually to teach. It's interesting, right? Your your job is to to guide the hive brain in the classroom, the students to really teach each other because there's so much experience and to try to guide it and flow it and pit you know pit different points of view against one another. I, I'm still really new at it, but you know, on the rare occasion that that goes well, it's like, it's just amazing. It's so energizing to see that happen. Of course, I've, many more times where you're, you know, you screw things up, um, you know, or you're like, 
you want to make something happen and, and you're not getting that, that friction. But for me, pedagogically, that's was a great way to learn. And also it's a really fun way, uh, fun way to teach. So what did you do coming straight out of school? So when I was at HBS, as I said, I was very interested in technology and startups. And at the time, the thing that was really interesting to me was wireless technology and mobility. So hard to imagine now with connection everywhere and Wi-Fi and mobile phones being at the center of our lives. Um, that was not the case. Um, you could hardly, you hardly get a good you know, mobile phone or mobile connection in the U.S. Europe is much further ahead. So I was spending a lot of time at school uh, thinking about business opportunities uh, in the wireless mobility space. And, and through that, we were working on some startup ideas. And then through that, I actually met a set of folks who were running a venture capital firm at the time called One Liberty Ventures. And um, the managing partner there was a friend and a mentor to one of my classmates who was a military a veteran from the Norwegian Special Forces. And he, he and I were working on these mobility questions together. So long story short, I had thought I would start a company. We were working on some startup ideas. But then we had the opportunity to go and work at this venture capital firm thinking about not only investing in companies, but starting new companies. And that just seemed to me like, wow, that was really interesting. And I had an opportunity to go do something that I probably had no right doing with some folks that I really liked and respected. And I thought, for me, that was going to be the place where I was going to learn the most, where I could add some value for the things that I experienced and I've done, but I was going to learn a whole bunch. And that really turned out to be a great decision. And then literally for the next 18 years, in some shape or form or another, we were building that firm. And that firm went on to be called Flagship Ventures and then Flagship Pioneering and um, is one of the largest, most successful venture capital firms in the country. And so in, in that experience, I got a chance to invest in companies successfully and unsuccessfully and start companies successfully and unsuccessfully. And it just became this incredible set of experiences that I never would have imagined. And then ended up, you know, fast forward, I ended up going in and becoming CEO of one of the companies I had helped get started and invested in that was struggling to to really make its way forward commercially. And so I then, you know, after many years of doing venture capital, I ended up, in addition to that, going in and being CEO of a company that we grew globally. So I had those sets of experiences over the next 20 years, which was really amazing. As I look back, I get, you know, I spent a lot of time talking to students because, you know, they, they're there to learn, but they're also there to really figure out what they're about and where their, their path forward is in the world. And so it's, it's always great to hear them and try to listen. And it's not my job necessarily to give advice, but to ask the right set of questions or at least share my, my experiences. And I've had this sort of random but lucky and wonderful journey from the military to doing the things I did uh, in the venture capital world and then the entrepreneurial world and then ending up back at HBS and doing other things. And that's just that's the journey I've been on. You can't replicate that. But I think trying to help the students think through their decisions and, and pursuing things are going to push them where they're going to learn and where they're going to have a lot of passion, I think helps. That's, that's the best advice I can give them. You can't do the path I did because that was my path, mm -hmm. but you can, you can carve out your own journey and your path forward. What were some of the bigger 
personal and professional changes that you went through as you went on this path of going into VC, working on a bunch of different companies, getting a lot of exposure, being a CEO from the time you came out of the military to where you are now? What were those transformational moments? Yeah, so many. And I'm still, it's interesting now that I'm teaching, I'm uncovering them as I teach because I'm reflecting back and figuring out how do I share my experiences in a way that the students can grab onto and apply. So I, it's, it's, it's really a, an interesting experience to be teaching again. I obviously taught a lot in the military, so I, it, I'm actually uncovering them day by day. But I think for me, it was interesting when I first, when I first left business school or even at business school, I, I had this sense, like I, I wanted to make it on who I was, like my skills. And so I was, I kind of was, and I'm still pretty low key despite our previous conversation about being a fighter pilot, I don't, I don't lead with that. I don't talk much about that. In fact, for a while, I didn't want to do that. I wanted to sort of make it on my commercial chops, if you will. Hmm. Um, and so, you know, it, it took a while to, to really integrate the, the military experience and the commercial experience in, in a way that really made sense. Because you couldn't just directly apply all the things you did in the military, because especially in the startup world, things were very different. And I had to unlearn some habits. I mean, even though the aviation world is pretty agile, there's a, there's a chain of command and it can be fairly command and control. And you've got to lose some of those habits of deference and, and waiting to, you know, asking for permission. And you just got to go do things, right? You come out of the SF world. So, um, you sort of had that embedded. So I think that, that transition of not necessarily, doing everything like I did in the military on one hand or completely eschewing everything that I did in the military, finding that in, that integrated me and allowing myself to be, you know, a, a whole new, whole new type of leader, or a whole new type of thinker. I also think that in the military, um, although we, you know, we certainly did strategy and at Top Gun, we thought a lot about what's going to happen next. I wouldn't have considered myself you know, a strategician at all, right? And so one of the things about doing venture investing and sitting on a lot of boards is the way just my strategic thinking got so much crisper and clearer because you see a lot of reps of companies doing things right and doing things wrong. And it's really fun to bring that back now in teaching and think about how do you teach strategy, the tactics, you know, the doing. I was a pretty good doer. And then I got, I think, much, much better at the, the, the strategy piece. And the other thing I had to learn was especially as an investor, you're sitting on boards, you're not running anything, right? So a lot of your influence is, is soft in influence, right? You're trying to nudge a company or guide with the right question as opposed to like, hey, we're going to take this hill, right? And so over time, I learned to be much more strategic and also kind of more subtle in how you influence things, which, which can make you, you know, a much more effective venture investor and, and a board member. But then Fast forward, when I went back into like a really deep operating role where I was the CEO, I felt like I had to unlearn all that stuff and get, get good again at the operations and, and being responsible and accountable for things as opposed to telling you know, other people, hey, you should think about this, you should think about that. But I think in that full cycle of leaving the military, doing the investing for so long and just being forced into so many different environments and coming back as a CEO, it kind of brought me full circle yeah, you know, I, I think in a sense of being able to integrate the strategic with the tactical, the, the more direct uh, leadership with the more soft sort of influencing leadership. So it's been, a, I mean, it was an amazing experience learning how to do that. And the other thing I realized is though, I've had all this training, 
you know, from the academy on for now almost 40 years. And I still feel like I, I make, I, I make so many mis- bonehead mistakes on any given day. And it's just so much to learn. So it's this, it's humbling um, and challenging that you realize that there's so much more to learn. And I see people doing something like, wow, that person really knows what they're doing. It's really impressive, right? Even despite all the experiences and all that I've learned and I've done some things well, I've made a lot of mistakes, but I still feel like there's just so much more to learn, which is, which is really cool. And I'm learning a ton now teaching. I'm learning how to teach. I'm learning from the students, from my colleagues, but I'm, I'm also learning because it's, it's allowing me to integrate all these different experiences and then try to share them in a way, hopefully, that the students resonate with. Yeah, you talked about having a soft influence approach, not even just in your role as as you know an investor, but also you have so many different personality types outside of the military than inside of the military. Working within that type of organization, you really have to not change your leadership style, but maybe add more dimensionality to it. For sure that, for sure. I remember it was first year of business school and we were doing we were doing some crazy team project. It was some fluky HBS thing. Um, at least I thought it was. It turned out to be pretty good. And and so I'm with the team, you know, and I said it was like 10 years older and I just come out where I was, I was about command and control and I was in command. You know, it was like, okay, we're going to do stuff, right? So we're, you know, we're sort of doing this project and no one, nobody elected me the leader, right? We're supposed to be like, hey, let's figure this out. And I was just like, I was getting frustrated. I was like, what's, yeah, we're going to do this, 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 this. Guy, you know, to his credit, basically, hey, uh, Jim, you're not the, you know, you're not in charge here. And and I was like, oh yeah, I'm not. So like just that of like learning to like undo that stuff and then learning from folks that were, you know, from different realms and, and different backgrounds was, was really good. And then, yeah, you come out and you realize that it's endlessly fascinating, right? How many different people and personalities there are. I sort of, I guess at my core, I'm really like an organizational behavior hobbyist or wonk because I just, I find these companies these organizations, fascinating, all the different pieces and the puzzles and how do you assemble them? How do you build a good team? And I, I, I love to see those rare cases where it all comes together, where you got the right team, the right culture, the right mission, and they're, they're killing it. And there's very few of those. So I'm really fascinated by what makes an, an organization great. And sometimes it is the leader, but it's, 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 it's more complex than that because it's the ability, to your point of bringing all these different personalities together. I'm a huge believer increasingly that you know, diversity of every sense makes a team stronger. It's more challenging to bring diverse people together. I mean, I've had friends that who are veterans have had very veteran-heavy teams, and and they've migrated from that because you know that's too much, too much clustering of the same experiences. And so some veterans, but that right blend of diversity across done well is like really cool to watch, but rare, rarely seen. How much does that organizational culture play into your perception of success? If you're looking as an investor or as an advisor, what are some of the bigger indicators that you see or maybe you personally try to suss out? Yeah, you know, there's the, and you look at the data or you talk to any venture capital investor and you ask them what matters most when you make an investment. And it's almost always going to be about the team, the team, the team, right? And, and, Every most people will say that, but then you kind of push deeper as you are about what does that actually mean? To some people, it means someone who's got a track record you know, of success or maybe comes out of the right schools. And you could look at the data. You can look at research data that some of my colleagues do and 
to your earlier question about top business schools, if you come out of a good business school, you're more likely to get funded. Unfortunately, if you're a white guy, you're more likely to get funded, Mm -hmm. right? And so I think the world is going through this this situation right now where they're trying to think about what, what does the right person to invest in look like? What does the right team look like? And so I, I think team matters, culture matters. I mean, I love the, the statement that many people are attributed with is that, that culture eats strategy for breakfast, right? So you can have a brilliant strategy. And if you've got a super dysfunctional culture, it's going to make it really difficult. But if you've got the right team, they're probably going to figure some things out and make good things, make good things happen. So I think it's um, like when you think about it, so much of what I've done has been really early informative work, and and you know, we, and I can go into a, a more fully formed team and pretty quickly sort out okay, custom strengths and weaknesses. You can kind of kind of figure out what's going on there, but often it's very emergent where you're starting with one person or two or three people, and you're trying to figure out is is that core is that kernel going to be a kernel of greatness. You know, in, in back in the in the Stripes movie, right? It's the I'm the the acorn that grows into the giant oak, right? Is it going right. to be that, or is it going to be a little sapling that dies? And so, trying to assess that and see is there a kernel of greatness, you know, in that person or in that team? Um, and and again, to the diversity piece, I think at least the the businesses I've been involved with, where you have a because it's really technical, so you can have a gr- someone who's really world class in technology, but also, I love co-founder situations where you have a two or three person co-founding team, and you got the different aspects that come together, and they bring different dimensions, different experiences, but a shared mission, shared values that I think is super important. If you have that, and that's super rare, boy, that's the thing you want to just kind of grab onto and and you know give them time and love and and money and let them go do great things. But you can also see, I've seen situations where, and we've probably all seen this too in our personal life, if you see like a, a friend who's, um, you know, or a couple that's dating, it just don't feel like the right couple, you know, just something that's going to be challenging for them. And you see that also with co-founders and you can see, oh man, that's going to be really tough. That is not, at least my view, that's not the kernel of greatness that's going to start. And occasionally they surprise me, but normally if that base is not strong, either from, you know, the right chemistry or the right common values, then that's going to be a real problem. And I, and I've literally just in the last six months, I've probably had a half a dozen conversations with students or, uh, or colleagues or people I'm helping and had that difficult conversation about that very issue. Like you're better off breaking it early than trying to hold it together by not dealing with real issues because eventually it's going to catch up with you. So that core team and are they connected? And then, and then are you adding the right people as you go? Are you setting the right culture? Are you challenging people? Are you communicating openly and clearly? I, I mean, I, I got challenged a lot when I went in and, and became a CEO again about coming up with my own philosophy of how transparent to be with the, the team. I mean, I love the idea of like, sure, everybody in the company should know everything that's going on, but there's a trade-off, right? There's a lot of friction. There's a lot of emotional urges that people will spend if they know everything that's going on. On the other hand, as a CEO, if you're kind of holding it all yourself, it's not fair to your team. And also, I don't feel it's fair to you. So trying to find this balance of transparency and communication in, in this culture, I think, again, you can see those few companies that really do it well. Uh, and I think they get it right for a while and they go through growth spurts and then that kind of disrupts things. And then they got to kind of reorganize themselves as well as they kind of grow and go. From seeing all of these companies, how has your approach to ambiguity changed over the years? I would say I, I am much more, I've always been pretty comfortable with ambiguity. 
uh, and complexity. I like complexity. I kind of, I studied systems engineering, so I kind of can, I like to think of things as a system. So I think I'm more comfortable with ambiguity, but I think part of it also is that I can quickly systematize and dimensionalize things uh, because you just have experience and it's, it's all these pieces. And the first time you see it, you have no idea what it is. And then you can look at it and go, oh, that's a Jackson Pollock painting, right? Okay, I get it. I understand what that thing is. And I, and I know that if we do these certain things, that can actually unfold in a good way. The bad side of that is if we, when you've been around the track um, in, what, in whatever context, you can kind of also see, hey, you know what? Like three more laps around the track and this thing is not going to be looking very pretty. So we got to fix things now. So I think I'm more, more comfortable. I also, I, I, I think I'm probably have worked hard on trusting trusting myself, trusting other people, trusting that things are actually going to turn out. I mean, I'm generally an optimist, but really just sort of trusting. I don't have to know how it's going to unfold. I don't have to be in control of everything. I, just if I do the right set of things and we communicate clearly, we have good intentions, the chances are this is probably going to turn out okay. And if we get lucky and we do a couple of things just right, it might turn out great. So I think trusting, seeing the patterns of, of complexity from experience, I think, and then I think also just I keep coming back to communication, but actually communicating and listening to others and understanding that that their perspectives may be very different. And the more different they are, the probably the more I should listen to them because it's going to help me understand the situation that maybe right now I don't have a clear situational awareness around. Aside from organizational stuff, what are what are the like concrete indicators of success and failure that you see tactically as as a venture capital guy? Yeah, I think that um, founding teams and companies that are very market customer focused uh, generally do do well. I mean, there's a whole now world of lean startup and product market fit, right? So the the more oriented you are to get out and and understand it and engage in the problem you're trying to solve with the customers you want to solve it for is great. The folks that sit back, you know, and, and start writing code too quick or start building something too quick. They don't really, I don't think they're informed as to what the market or the customers really need. So those that are really market facing, spend that time and energy to really understand the problem or come out of the problem set um, and really deeply understand it, I think, great. As opposed to many technologies that that I've invested in and others is a the classic technology that's looking for a problem to solve. You know, that's, that, that can be a, a long, a long road to a small house if you, if you go down that path too many times. I also think, you know, teams that really understand and focus on aligning everybody. We talk a lot about incentives, but, you know, the, the teams that really think about seriously about the investment they take, about the customers they're serving uh, and are really super clear about why they're, why they're in business and what they're doing and have a very clear, you know, long-term path. And, and then their tactics align with that. There's a lot of companies that do well, that, that get stuff done, but the ones that are actually doing stuff in, the, in a strategic context are rare and they actually do uh, do really well also. You know, I think leaders themselves, I think the leaders that that are self-aware, that surround themselves with peers that, get, that, that you know, aren't looking to be told what to do, but listen and then can synthesize and then deploy and be dis- decisive, but also be agile in doing this whole thing called the OODA loops to get back to fighter pilot land, which is basically the idea that you do something, you observe, how's it going? If it's going well, do more of it. If it's going badly, adjust and, and make a change. So I think the companies that are 
really learning organizations that are agile uh, are the ones that are going to do well. There are some that are very dogmatic. You know, the founder has a vision, we're going to do this. And sometimes, you know, that passion and that, that persistence pays off. There are some who are just agile for agile. It's like they change their mind every day. But the ones that really are systematic about going and doing something and observing and then shifting thoughtfully, I think you can watch it. You can watch a company. Even when you're doing diligence, from the time you meet a company till the time you invest, you are immersed with them. And yeah, you're looking at documents and learning stuff. But the thing I always do in due diligence is I'm trying to watch that company and that leader. How are they thinking? How are they reacting? Um, do I like them better a month later? Am I more excited about potentially investing than them or not? So there's a lot of things that you can observe. But this market orientation, this self-awareness, this right combination of agility um, and intentionality, I think matters a lot. And so how'd you get to be at Harvard teaching this stuff? Did they come ask you, hey, or how did you get connected? So having graduated from HBS and then living in Boston, yeah. I had the good fortune of being able to be proximal so I could go over to campus. And so I stayed engaged. I did a, I, I supported the school. I got to know the professors in entrepreneurial management who were teaching this stuff. And just because I wanted to stay engaged and, and, and stay connected to everyone and try to help. I was part of a, a first class of entrepreneurs in residence at HBS, which are basically alumni that come back and mostly mentor students and help them think about startups. So I was engaged in the community. I think some combination of kind of my orientation, the fact that I'd done some teaching and I was oriented towards like learning, teaching and learning, which is a big part of what we talked about, sort of the Top Gun ethos. The fact that I'd had a unique set of experiences, not only in the military, but also since being both a venture investor, doing founding of companies and running a company. So it's a kind of unique set of experiences. And I got to a point in uh, 2018, we had sold a company that I was running. I was still associated with Flagship, but I, I, I just felt like it was time felt like I was the first time after the intensity of leaving the military in that sort of almost next 20 years, I was like, you know, I felt like I was ready to do something different yet. Mm -hmm. And and the thing I really care about, I spent a lot of time on now is on climate and sustainability. So I spent a lot of time doing that. So I knew that I stepped back and I said, I really want to be in a position where I can focus my time and intention and resources on that problem set. So I, I had an opportunity to step back and then I went over to, you know, just to visit some friends and colleagues at HBS. And he had heard that I was at a point where I was thinking about doing something different. And they said, you know, we think you might be good at this. What would you think about teaching here? And at first I was like, well, you know, I was honored, but I was like, boy, I feel like maybe it's too soon to do that. I was, I'm only 55. And I said, well, let's do this. I said, why don't I just sit in on some classes and see how the whole teaching thing works. So I did it that fall of 2018 where I sat in the classes, did a little bit of teaching, and I was just really enthralled by it all. I was learning a lot. It felt like a really cool thing to do. And one thing led to another, and I joined the faculty soon after and took over the entrepreneurial finance course, which is an iconic course at HBS. Bill Solomon started it 40 years ago. So it's just this really great course, but it's also a course that is constantly changing. And so it was a, a challenge to kind of live up to the history of the course, but also change it. And I, I partner with a a professor that moved from Stanford to Harvard. So we co-teach it together. Uh, and then there's so much more because I, I, I wouldn't have gone there just to teach because, mm -hmm. I mean, that, that was great, but it was the opportunity to have a platform where I could learn and synthesize all that I'd done to actually teach. But also I felt like HBS and Harvard, generally, there was much more that the university and the school should be doing in the world of climate and sustainability 
and there was a burgeoning set of movements. I was like, you know what? I can complain about it, which I was as an alumni, or I have an opportunity to join the faculty and be part of the solution. And so I'm spending a lot of time being part of helping Harvard think about its role in, in sustainability and climate. And there's some great work going on, getting to work with the Armed Forces Alumni Association with the students. So it's been this incredibly rich uh, environment. And it's, it's, I'm, it's still really new. I'm just teaching for the second year. And it's also the challenge of doing something new. I mean, I've taught in different contexts, but teaching here is, it's its own unique challenge and opportunity. So that's cool too, to be challenged to do something completely new in, in my mid fifties is super cool. Well, add on COVID too. You're two years into teaching yeah. and then yeah. and now we're making this shift. Well, that's right. So, so last year I taught in the physical environment and I learned a lot doing that. I was like, okay, I can do that again. So I've taught the course once, but you're right. We redesigned the whole entrepreneurial finance course over the summer. Hmm. And so we're teaching very differently through Zoom. We're breaking up the classes. We're doing small team projects. So it's, you're exactly right. So I know the course and the material better because I taught it once, but it's a very different experience teaching it uh, virtually. I'm learning a lot. I'm having to be more intentional about how to deliver the content and how to pace the content and how to stop and catch the whole zoom class up to where we are. And, you know, we're, we're three weeks into it and it's so far so good, but you know, my colleague and I, we, you know, we debrief after every class and go, what went well, what didn't do well, what do we do, what to do next? But it's a really interesting environment. I hope it doesn't stay like this forever, obviously for COVID reasons, but also I still think there's something special about being in the classroom. Pardon the interruption, everyone, but I wanted to talk quickly about how to engage with and support the show. First, if you do nothing else, please go ahead and share us with at least one other person. You cannot beat word of mouth advertising. Everything about the show can be found at thankyounowwhat.com. You can email us directly at thankyounowwhat at gmail.com for any follow-ups, show notes, gripes, complaints, corrections, or good ideas. Follow us on Instagram or Twitter at ThankYouNowWhat. If you're a new listener, please subscribe so you can get our latest episodes every two weeks. We're on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. If there's something we're not on that we should be, go ahead and let us know. If you really like what we're doing here and you'd like to share the cost of doing business with us, there are a couple options. You can give a one-time donation via the PayPal link on our website, or you can go to our Patreon site, patreon.com slash thank you now what. There you can subscribe to give a fixed amount per episode, even if it's just a dollar. Please know that Ben and I are volunteering our time and effort and that all net proceeds from this podcast will be redirected to nonprofits that support veterans as soon as we pay for things like hosting, software, and equipment. You can also choose to give directly to the nonprofits we feature. Thanks, and let's get back to the episode. You're, you know, you do, you do environmental stuff and sustainable investing. The, the company that you are CEO of is a water technology company. How long have you been yes. involved in this kind of work? So, I mean, I've always been attuned to being an outdoors person and, and a lover of nature. I'm not sure that I would be called an original tree hugger, but you know, I, I sort of appreciate the environment. Although I, I did my fair share of damage, you know, flying where, you know, you're probably my, uh, my carbon footprint in this lifetime is still pretty high despite all the things I've done to try to counteract it. It's a public I think good. It was, Right. That's right. That's right. So it's not my fault. So it's interesting, you know, at, at flagship at the venture capital firm, the whole idea was how do we, how do we solve, you know, the world's biggest problems using technology uh, in an entrepreneurial environment? And so 
the firm has been wildly successful in biotech and life and health sciences investments and innovations. So we're looking at different places where the same approach, the same skill set could apply. And we started thinking deeply about sustainability. So I think where it really started to click for me was probably in 2003, 2004, 2005, where, you know, I'd, I'd gone through business school. I had my feet on the ground in the commercial world doing investments, starting companies. And I started looking and go, wow, learning from these guys who are really good at investing and starting companies. Like if we could apply that, you know, that same capability to climate and sustainability, we could do some real good. So I kind of went all in and the firm got energized and we started a sustainable technology investing set of activities and got involved a lot of different companies, biofuels, biochemicals, agricultural, solar, some successful, some unsuccessful. It turns out it's a very, very hard space to innovate in mm-hmm. because of the, the value chains that you're playing in the regulatory frameworks, the long development cycles of some of these technologies that makes it all the more important, you know, that we do it. And, you know, 15 years ago, I mean, 30 years ago, there's been people that have been talking about real climate issues. And now I think in 2020, we're seeing it. I mean, we, we got an air quality index in Boise of about 160 today because there's all the fires that are happening to the West, right? So mm-hmm. all sorts of issues around climate and sustainability. So I would say that I, I, I got into it that way and then became more and more uh, committed to it. And, and, and I saw how important it was. And what's really cool about it too is that there's, there's, sort of, it's, there's a group of us that's growing happily you know, across the country, across the world that are committed to this. And people are doing it in their own ways. But those of us that are what we call sort of the clean tech warriors that are starting and investing in companies and trying to really bring new ideas of how do we, how do we live and how do we move around the world and how do we use resources more, more thoughtfully, um, you know, at scale. And it's, it's incredibly humbling because it's really hard to do. And, you know, now after doing it for almost 20 years, I'm still doing it because I work with Breakthrough Energy Ventures, which is a, a group led by Bill Gates and others who have you know a bunch of capital. So trying to support that team to invest in, in just as it says, breakthrough technologies. I work with the engine uh, out of MIT where they're doing tough technology. We call about tech. It's these, these, these entrepreneurial pursuits that are pursuing things that have very high degrees of risk and uncertainty, both in technology and market. So we think about the world and all the big problems and systemic issues out there. There's no easy solution. So we've got to think about bringing the right scale and and complexity of solutions to bear against these problem sets. And that means that we need a lot of people that are working it and innovating everything from the technology to the way we deploy capital to the way we lead these organizations. So it's another cool reason why being at HBS is 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 a great opportunity because I'm not only learning that, but I'm able to develop a new course. We're developing a new course called Tough Tech, which tries to take all these learnings from everybody that's doing these things and translate them into uh, into lessons for our students. That's that's great. And I don't think a lot of people, I don't know, people know how much is out there in terms of like taking business skills and applying them to environmental problems, right? And you're really you're really enabling people to take those long shot approaches at our biggest problems, right? For sure. Yeah. I mean, and, and I think what's really cool about, I did a small group gathering as we're doing, you know, a, a few times a week with our students and just talking about their careers and things they care about, but uniformly, like everybody, they want to do something that really matters. They want to make a difference in the world and they, they have other priorities as well, but uniformly they care about that. 
and there are plenty of problems that that you know to, to focus on. Um, and I think you're right. I mean, m- my world has been a lot about technology innovation and such. But if one cares about sustainability, for example, could be water, could be climate. There's a whole bunch of different ways that you can make a difference. You don't have to start a clean tech company. You could be a sustainability leader inside of your organization, or you could work in your community, or you can go you know, deploy capital in a in a high impact way. So there's lots of ways that you can make a difference and find an application of your skills. And by the way, you know, to all the way circle back to veterans, it's an incredibly good feel for veterans because I think we're going to have to deploy a lot of new infrastructure, solar and wind and new ways of thinking about sustainable infrastructure. And I think it's a great place for, for you know, our military veterans to go and lead in, in really profound green collar operational ways. So I think that's really important. I'm giving a talk next week to some to a group of the students in the sustainability club and the challenge is to try to do what we're doing here which is try to dimensionalize all the different career paths where one could have an impact uh, in 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 the world of sustainability and climate even if it's like a not the headline right you know if it's, i'm going to do something else i'm going to be a consultant well can you consult companies and how to think about a more sustainable supply chain um i want to i want to actually go work at a mutual fund i want to do investment well, can you invest in ESG? So there's, I mean, there's, I think no matter what you do, you can fold in things you care about. And if it happens to be like me, sustainability and climate, there's a lot of ways to do it. If it's healthcare, the aging population, education, social injustice. I mean, we're seeing all this amazing, it's a bit disruptive right now, but I think society is getting, you know, a big shock to the system right now with COVID and Black Lives Matters. And I think hopefully we're able to internalize all this stuff and come out on the other side better for it. But I think it's society saying this stuff isn't working. We need to think differently. Hmm. I know we're past time, but if you had a couple more minutes, I want to talk about something else, another sort of service-based industry where you're working with veterans and that's politics. Oh yeah. Only two minutes. Can't we talk? We could do another hour. Oh my goodness. (laughs) Well, I I, I don't want to keep you on forever. Yeah. No, no, no. You guys have been kind to listen. Um, yeah, I think, right. So veterans and servant leaders in politics is something, because I think none of this, none of this positive change happens if we don't, if we don't govern ourselves better. And I just, you know, I'm, I'm an independent, so I'm, I'm not apolitical, but I am sort of, I call myself postpartisan, which is, I want to get to a place where we just have a more functional political system. But so much of what needs to be done either has to be done because of political dysfunction or won't happen unless we figure out how to work through the politics and policy of things. And so the the simple thesis that a a bunch of us have is that if we have more servant leaders, veterans among them, but also AmeriCorps members and Teach for America, folks that have, have, have demonstrated in their life and experienced in their life working for a mission bigger than themselves. I mean, those of us that have been fortunate to do that either in the military or someplace else realize, man, that's the way to live, right? I mean, it's, let's, let's work on yeah. a mission bigger than, than just ourselves. And so the, the theory of change is if we can get more servant leaders in public service roles, whether it's at the local, state, or especially the federal level, that we can make a difference. And, and we need these folks to, to be on both sides of the aisle because what we need is folks who are willing to have the courage to have bipartisan conversations and actually forward bipartisan legislation. And right now that's a 
doesn't sound like it would be courageous to do that, but that takes a lot of courage because, you know, if you're a Democrat and you're working with a Republican, you're going to get primaried by, you know, a, a strong progressive. On the other hand, you know, if you're a moderate Republican, you know, you got some issues on your far right flank. And so I've had the good fortune to work with folks that are committed to this. A couple organizations that, you know, are worthy of knowing. Of course, you got Vote Vets and all they're doing. But in particular, there's an organization called New Politics. Emily Cherniak runs that out of Boston. And it just came out of her experience of working with servant leaders who were running for office who just weren't, who weren't ready for that. And um, so New Politics is entirely set up. It's in a, a bipartisan organization that's trying to work across the country through the New Politics Leadership Academy to help servant leaders who are who may be leaving the military or leaving Teach for America who are maybe did that earlier in their life and they feel that call back to public service and feel like they want to either run for office or want to support those that can run for office. There's a whole group of us around the country that are either running for office or supporting others that are running for office. And I've done a lot of, I have not run for office, but I've supported many that have done fundraisers for a lot of my veteran friends, been involved in campaigns. One of the folks we work with at New Politics is Congressman Seth Moulton. So he's the congressman from the Massachusetts 6th up on the North Shore. And Seth's a great American Marine veteran, Harvard Business School, Harvard Kennedy School grad. And he's done a great job in Congress. He decided that he wanted to explore running for president in 2020 as a Democrat. And I said, listen, well, I'll help you. Let's, let's ask some questions and decide whether it's a good thing to do or not. So we spent three months thinking about it. At the end, it was like, ah, one of those things, there's always more reasons not to do it than to do it. Um, yeah. It's like, this is the mission. Let's let's go do it. And so launched a campaign and I became his campaign manager, his launch campaign manager, a thing I have no right doing or no experience doing, but it was an amazing experience to to, to, to launch and build an organization and to learn about the, the political machinery of campaigns and such. And so mm. there's all sorts of ways for folks out there to get involved. Many of us are super frustrated by by the dysfunction of politics. And so it doesn't mean you have to run, but you can, if you got somebody great who's running locally or one of your Congress members, you know, get engaged and uh, make your voice heard and, and, and help get great people to run. If we can get more, more servant leaders, more veterans in the right places, I, I really do believe that good things can happen. We had a very, very strong 2018, mostly Democrats, but we had a great batch of veterans who got elected to Congress and they're making a huge difference. And so I think you know, if we can do more of that, that will be, will be very helpful. The, the members of Congress, both Senate and the House, is at an all-time low. I mean, in, in, in the 50s and 60s and 70s, it was 50, 60, 70 percent of the members of Congress had been veterans because most many people in America had been veterans. You know, we're down into you know, high single digits, low double digits. And I, and I think we need more of that. Do you think people are surprised at how many vets are Democrats? You know, it's interesting, right? So the, you know, those of us, you know, who are a little bit older, um, well, first, you know, in the military, it's sort of not, you don't really think in terms of politics, at least you didn't. And it was, it was, I think, perceived to be a fairly conservative institution. And I think it is. Yeah. I think that's changed over time. Um, I think now, if you actually were to poll members of the military now, you'd probably, they probably map pretty closely to, to the rest of the country. And especially a lot of these especially a lot of our enlisted members are coming out of places that are probably going to lean more uh, more democratic than republican but i also think what happened in in the last 2 to 4 years is i think that military folks by their nature are are pretty moderate and pragmatic 
And, and so that puts them sort of in the, you know, center, whatever. And if they were a third party or an independent party, I bet you a lot of folks, including me probably would, would run because they, they see that. They see that practical nature of a bipartisan mechanism that can make good things happen. And I think it's been really hard over the last handful of years for someone to be center right been easier for a while to be center left. And I think it's, unfortunately, I think it's becoming harder to become center left even. So I'm a little bit worried that that middle ground starts to become untenuous. And some of these great leaders that we ought to have in Congress either can't get elected or don't even run yeah, because there's just not a lot of tolerance or because the money and the social media attention goes to the polls. And, and not saying that there aren't valid arguments from very conservative groups or, or very progressive groups, but I think we've got to find some balance because we don't, if we don't find a way to get stuff done, then it doesn't serve anybody. I listened to the Freakonomics podcast and they have a really good episode that they just rebroadcast about uh, why our political system is a duopoly. Um, <clears throat> just logically yeah. why and why it's so hard to overcome. So I won't double down on that, you know, uh, go into that. You can listen to that podcast if you want to, but uh who are some of the people that you see who may be able to be that, you know, post-partisan politician kind of are doing the right thing now? And is there hope to to meet in the center on some stuff? I hope that there is. Um, we'll see. I, and I think this question of a duopoly and I want to listen to the I love the Freakonomics way of looking at things. And Michael Porter uh, and, and some of his colleagues at. Harvard have done the same study looking at politics as an industry, and it is an industry, it's a very big industry. A lot of money goes through the political machine, um, and it serves, as you say, it serves the the two duopolists to keep it that way. I think there's some, I think with, there's a lot of grassroots movements. I think there's a lot of, a lot of things happening um, as it relates to identifying this and trying to break down the barriers for candidates who are going to be more moderate or even independent to access the capital the knowledge and the ballot box, which is a big part of what the parties control. So I think I think there's some good things happening. I mean, one of the reasons that I really resonate with someone like Seth Moulton is he's, I mean, he he's got some balanced views. He's 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 got some conservative views that I resonate with. He's got some progressive views. So I think there's a lot of good leaders that if you isolate them and and, and independently you look, and then they're having to operate obviously inside the political machinery. I think this. This election, you know, we're now, what, 47 days away or something yeah. from the November 3rd uh, election. I mean, every election is important. This one's particularly important. And it's been interesting to see, you know, how the Republicans have dealt with and, and largely embraced Trump and how the a really talented group, 27 Democrats ran for, for president and some incredibly, I mean, a uniformly talented people. And we could go through in another conversation the political physics of how we ended up uh, with Vice President Biden. And, you know, so if you look at it conceptually, it sort of makes sense. But it was a very interesting primary to see the tension between the progressive wing and the more moderate wing. And we'll see kind of where that resolves itself. But I, I, I do think I, I do think that everybody, I think most Americans want a more functional government. I think even a lot of people that are in the business of government want a more functional government. But the question is, can, to your point, can we break down the, the, the industry value chain enough that that can actually happen? Hmm. I'll tell you the one thing I would say is that 
I, I, we're seeing a lot of really important innovation happen in a more distributed way at the state and especially the local level. I just think about in Boise or in Boston, the two places where I live, incredible communities, great local leadership. And I think as the federal government becomes more dysfunctional or isn't doing what it ultimately needs to do at all times, you're seeing, I think, the way that the republic should work is that things are happening. You're seeing real innovation in a more distributed way at the state and local level. Right. So we're gonna, I think that part we got to pay attention to as well. Local government, we're a union of smaller pieces. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, right on, right on. Totally, totally. Cool. We would love to talk to you about this at, at great length. I think that we're, <laughs> ca- we're capping our yeah, now we're episodes good. Yeah. at a certain time. Uh, one yeah, more. Yeah, I know. I guess one, and we'll want to have you back on to talk about like entrepreneurship stuff and maybe we can have like a group episode with other entrepreneurs that we've had on the podcast at some point uh, but one and of course when we top gun 2 comes out oh yeah that yeah too. so we totally huge <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly uh one last question we, we want to ask you because we ask everyone as you look back on it who are you today if you never served oh such a good question uh I think if I had not served in, in, in probably in any capacity, but certainly the way that I went through it through the academy and all the things that I had an opportunity to do, I, I'm not a fraction of what I am today. And I don't even mean like, you know, resume bullets or success or wealth, but I just am not. I don't think I'm the person that I am as far as the way I think about things, the character that I try to live the support that I have, the relationships and the network that I have in the positive sense. It just, I think about that sometimes, you know, because it's a big decision to go to the academy when you're 18 years old and it's not easy. And occasionally I, you know, I go, well, what if, what if I had done something else? Mm. And I would say the older I get, the more that question almost scares me. I'm like, oh my gosh, what if I had done something different? And what if I hadn't gotten in? What if I hadn't been so lucky to you be accepted to the schools I had a chance to go to and meet the people I had a chance to meet. So, yeah, I'm, I don't think I'm a, I, I don't know what I would be, but I, it wouldn't, I don't think it would be a fraction of the, the richness or the impact or the learning or the relationships that I've been able to and be blessed to have. Yeah. I like how you said that it scares you because I, maybe I hadn't thought about it that way, but actually it probably scares me too. What, what if I didn't, what if I didn't make that choice? I'm just so glad that I, you know, had the opportunity to at that point in time and that I did. Yeah. And I have, I'm sure we all have friends. I mean, I definitely have friends that, you know, they're, they're, you know, the story that, well, I got accepted to the Academy. I didn't go and it was all good reason for it. I went to the Academy and I left. I think those folks, you know, by and large, I think live with a lot of regret, not because of that decision, but because I think they, they see what maybe might've been. And there are plenty of people that made that decision have done exceptionally well. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do think, I do think, and I see, you know, I see young people who are struggling with a decision and you can't tell them what to do. All you can tell them is, man, there's going to come a time where, you know, if you make this decision, it's going to be one of those forks in the road where you, you may have serious regrets. Yeah. Do you still fly? I do. I haven't flown in a little bit, but, oh, you know, over the last 20 years, I've been involved in, you know, owning or partnering out different airplanes and, yeah, I miss it. I haven't really had a chance to fly much since we've lived in Idaho. I want to do some flying here. I want to do some of that bush flying. I have some friends here that do some crazy flying, like landing on like riverbeds and stuff. And and so I'm I'm pretty sure I want to do that. Um, but I want to I want to, I want to, to try. It. I'm not even a pilot. Yeah, 
Exactly. So, and they show me these videos. They're kind of land this little hill. They land uphill into the wind and they're kind of up. And they, so, yeah, I think just flying and being up flying and seeing the world, you know, from three dimensions rather than just the normal two is like super cool. And it's, I, I miss it. It's, it you know, I got to get proficient again and I got to sort out all the logistics of it, but I do miss it. And I, I plan to continue to fly as long as, as long as the FAA will give me a license which may not be too much longer. I don't know. We'll see. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. You got to take some pictures for us. And uh, I will. Well, we'll go up. We'll get up together. We'll do it together. Perfect. All right. Well, thanks. Thanks for being on with us. I already know it's going to be a great episode. And uh, I'm sure Ben will agree. Yeah, thanks. uh, This is our 10th episode. And it's a great way to kick off. Like we're getting into the next gear, so to speak. And it's a great way to kick off our next round. Yeah. Well, thanks, Guy. I appreciate you uh, reaching out. I appreciate you including me, and I'm sure you'll make this better than I did by myself, whatever. But it was you know, fun. I appreciate the conversation and look forward to seeing what comes from it all. But it's, uh, I mean, most importantly, we kept it real, and I'm sure you guys will do goodness with all that. So that was, it was fun. Thanks for tuning into this episode of Thank You Now What, a podcast about life after service. Be on the lookout for Jim as he trains the next generation of business leaders to take on some of society's toughest challenges and hopefully rejoins us on this very podcast to talk some more about entrepreneurship, maybe even a special Top Gun 2 episode. Who knows? If you're interested in new politics and you may remember us talking about them in episode 7 with Katie Neff, you can check them out at newpolitics.org. As always, thanks for listening to us. Please subscribe, rate, review, follow, and join us next time on Thank You Now What.